couple of weeks. Um, this will be the fourth week we've been looking um, at this first half of Ephesians chapter 4 uh, with a series that we've called Basic Church because in, in a sense, all that Paul is doing here is unpacking the primary components of what the church is and how it functions. And since we're in our last one, uh, and, and this one's kind of capstone, I, I just want to walk us through what we've learned the last few weeks. And so we saw uh, first uh, the idea of a worthy church, and, and that's taken from verse 1 where Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. And what's interesting is he looks back on chapters 1, 2, and 3, says you have been called into the body of Christ, the walls of hostility have been broken down, you've been called out of death into life, you've been called into the heavenly places where Jesus is. He lays all these things out, but when he says, therefore walk worthy of it, he doesn't just give us a bunch of um, basic ethical commands, but he gives us social virtues. The way that we walk worthy is to walk together. And so he says that we do that with humility and with gentleness and with patience and forgiving one another and these types of things. And so that's the first foundational reality of the church. We can call it the church as family. And the New Testament is full of these one another commands that we are supposed to fulfill because God has made us one and therefore love one another, therefore pray for one another, therefore encourage one another. And then we saw the second uh, aspect we saw in our second week was the unified church, that God has made us one body with one Lord filled with one spirit, who have all experienced one baptism, who have all accepted one faith, one belief, uh, and we saw how that unifies and brings us together. And then last week, Pastor Andy talked about the fact that we are to be a growing church, that we are a body, but we are a baby. Okay? We are living, we are breathing, we are uh, also immature. Okay? And so the way the body works is not static, it's not here we are and so we just stay where we are, but we're to be oriented towards, minded towards growth. And that growth is defined as becoming collectively as a community more and more like Jesus himself. So that the body of Christ more represents Christ himself. And we saw that the way that that works is that God has given each member of the body gifts to use to serve one another, and then he laid out some foundational or some priority gifts, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastors, and teachers. And those gifts aren't more significant or important than other gifts, but they do have to come first, because it's the apostles and prophets that have laid down the word and as we'll see, we're to speak the truth in love. What truth? The one of the apostles and prophets. And the evangelists are the ones who proclaim the gospel, and those who receive the gospel become part of the church. And then the pastors and the teachers, they steward and they instruct the word. And so all of these roles, as Paul says in verse 12, exist to equip the body, to equip the body to do the ministry, to build itself up, okay? And so where we're going to go today, we have this idea that we've been gathered together, we're one, we're to love one another, we're to grow together, and now we are going to talk about the loving church by looking at the closing verses here in verses 15 and 16. Let's read them together and pray. Rather, 
Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Father, it should be no surprise that if you are the God who is love, as John tells us, that your church would be a loving church. So I pray that you would help us to understand, to embrace, to enter into, to build upon the reality of this way that we are to grow, which is to speak the truth in love. We pray that you would send your spirit to teach us from the word that he has authored this morning, and that your spirit would also convict us and guide us into following in the ways of Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Obviously, verse 15 picks up mid-thought. That's why it begins with the word rather, right? That's a contrast word. It's, it's like instead So we need to go back just a little bit to understand the contrast that he's making, which we find in verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunningness, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. What Paul is pointing out there is that there is a danger of deception and that that danger is increased when the body isn't the body. Okay. Now, the thing is, all of us assume that everyone besides us is gullible. Okay? Just think of the way that you think about all of the political division in our world and how you can't wrap your head around how deceived those other people are. Do you really think they're made of different stuff than you? We, we have to develop the humility here to recognize that gullibility is a human trait. And it is one that is only protected and preserved against when, verse 15, we speak the truth in love. Okay. Now, I I would love to have a big uh, lecture on how that addresses our cultural issues and how both speaking the truth without love or trying to love without truth leads to places of deception. We'll leave that aside for this morning because what we're talking about is not so much about what happens out there, but what happens in this community right here. However, I do want to point out that our our vision in this church is that we would be discipled into a people who are committed to Capitol Hill in truth and love. So it does have application there. But this morning we want to talk about how it works here, and the contrast again is between immature children who are prone to deception, or, notice verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Okay, and so again, the maturity that's defined here is defined that we would be more and more like Jesus in our thinking, in our presence, in our behavior, in our attitudes, in our single commitment to the glory of God and doing his will, in all of those ways we are to be proactively pursuing growth as a community. But how does that work? Okay. And it works very simply in verse 15 by speaking the truth in love. Okay. 
Now, both of those words, truth and love, are slippery. Maybe more slippery now than they've ever been in human history. But whether that's the case or not, these are words that we need to take time to address. First, he says that we are to speak the truth. And in my Bible, that little word, the, is underlined because it doesn't say speak my truth. Okay? Now, I want to be clear here. Honesty is an essential characteristic that Paul calls us to in a church. He does it in the same chapter. Look with me in chapter 14, verse, or chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, speaking to the same community, speaking to us this morning, he says, Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. There, the focus is on being honest, not hiding behind falsehood, not being deceivers, and telling people what's really going on. And if we're growing as the body of Christ, the only way to grow is to grow in honesty, to grow in vulnerability, to be able to answer when somebody says, hey, how are you doing, honestly, and say, you know what, actually, today is a really rough day, okay? So honesty is essential. But when Paul says here, rather speaking the truth in love, in the context, he clearly means something different. And again, the reason I know this is because what did he tell us in verse 11? That the risen, ascended Jesus Christ gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. All five of those roles, all five of those gifts are word gifts. They're about the proclamation of and the protection and preservation of and the explanation and application of the truth, okay? And so as we better understand the truth, we can better speak the truth to one another and that leads to growth, okay? That's essential here. And so the truth that's spoken of here is, is the truth of the scriptures, Okay. It's the proclamation of the word of God. When somebody speaks the truth to one another, what they do is, hey, I was reading in the Bible yesterday, and it struck me because it said that. It's the truth when we say, don't forget that this is who God is. And maybe you don't quote chapter and verse, but you just say, God is faithful. You can pick a hundred verses that make that statement, but when we speak that, we speak the truth. When we speak the truth, we remind people of the calling that we've been talking about in this passage and call people away from the dangers and the things that God has said that are not his will for our life. That is speaking the truth. When we remind people that uh, we can enter into prayer and that God hears our prayers and then we join them in prayer, that is speaking the truth. This is a very big category, but it is defined by the word of God and who it proclaims God is and what it proclaims that God has done and what it proclaims that we are to do in response. That is the truth. Okay. But notice he doesn't say merely speaking the truth. Okay. If that were the case, then you could just get a podcast instead of a pastor and you could just get a whole bunch of books instead of a church. But he says that we need to speak the truth in love. Now again, love can be a slippery statement. It's one we use in a broad amount of ways. But I want to suggest to you again that Paul has something very particular in mind here. And I also want you to notice that he emphasizes this one. Because he starts with rather speaking the truth in love, but notice how he finishes at the end there of verse 16. He says, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up. How? In love. 
No love, no growth. Okay. But what is this love? I think too quickly we think about John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, that's clearly the love of God. And that's clearly a broad and profound thing. And in, in John's epistle, he says, when we love, it looks like that love. This is love, he says, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, let us even lay down our own lives for one another, okay? And so if we want to know how do we love one another, it should look like the, the self-giving, sacrificial reality of what Jesus did for us. In fact, he'll say the same thing at the opening of chapter 5, a little bit of homework, read ahead. But here, we can easily miss something that I think is implied here, because here we're talking about church love. And I would suggest to you, if we want to understand church love, we have to look at what Jesus said about the church, about his disciples, and about their love for one another. So really quickly, turn with me to John chapter 13. Just back a couple of books right into the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John is the last one. And this is, this is the passage where right before the Passover meal, Jesus, Jesus gets up, takes off his outer garments, wraps himself in a towel, and kneels before his disciples and begins to wash their feet. Okay? But I want you to notice how John opens this story in verse 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Okay. Now is that for God so loved the world love? In a sense it is. It's the same Jesus. But here he's talking not about how he loved the world, but how he loved these 12 men. The ones who had been with him, had walked with him, had prayed with him, that he had encouraged and counseled and spent all this time with, the same ones that he's about to kneel down and wash their feet. Okay. Now notice, after Jesus washes, this, washes their feet, he gets up and he gives an application. And I want you to notice what it says in verse 31. When he gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. If you want to chew on something, just chew on that. But verse 33, little children, speaking to these same disciples, yet a little while I'm with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to you, the Jews, so now I say to you where I'm going, you cannot come. Then notice this, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you are also to love one another. Now again, is that for God so loved the world love? In a sense, yes. Jesus is about to love them in just that way. But here he says, the love that I've given you over the last three years, just as I've loved you, the love that I gave you when I knelt down and washed your feet, that love, so also love one another. Okay. What I'm trying to get at here is that we're not talking about God's universal love for humanity, we're talking about the particular love for one another. Okay? There's a particularity here. The one another commandments that are given to Christians in the New Testament, the same ones that I referenced earlier, love one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, exhort one another. 
Those are not to do as you randomly encounter some Christian somewhere. The assumption is those one another's are a particular community of people. Your brothers and sisters, the body of Christ, the church is to love one another. Okay? And that's why many of the one another commands you cannot fulfill faithfully with just your average Christian who lives in a different place or at a different time in history. Okay? It says that we're not to forsake the gathering of together. Lots of churches are gathered here this, or gathered in our city this morning, some of them at the same time. The one you gather with is the one another. Okay? So when Paul says here, speaking the truth in love, he is talking about a context of loving relationship. He's talking about a lifestyle of caring for one another, of being concerned for one another. Speaking the truth in love is not just a, a posture it's a motivation. We speak the truth because of our love for one another. It's, it's a means. We speak the truth in love. The way that we speak is changed. It's a context. We speak the truth as we are going about regular relationships of love. All of this goes together. Okay? But it's important to recognize here that this is not merely speaking the truth in for God so loved the world love, but particular love committed to one another, walking life together love, okay? But there's a second thing we need to recognize about this because, and I hear it in Christians all the time, and I've probably said it myself in in the past, a lot of times we look at these two things, truth and love, and we see them as predispositions. Well, I'm a truth person. And another person's like, well, I'm a love person. And we both recognize these two go together. And so we may at best not justify that we're a truth person and excuse love. We may at best say, well, I'm a truth person. I'm trying to learn that love thing. Or, or we might be on the other end where love comes easy for us, but truth, especially when it's hard truth, that's something that we don't really like to do. But that's to misunderstand how these two things work. They are two things, but they are conjoined twins. Okay? And to try and separate them kills them both. To speak the truth without love is always a half-truth. Because what we do is we elevate one true thing, one thing God wants to say, and we ignore everything else that God has said. Remember Moses? Back in the book of Numbers, he comes to a point, and to be fair, he's had it rough. He's leading a group of people who are constantly complaining and annoying and bickering in spite of the fact that God is daily miraculously providing for their needs. It's it's really kind of a weird thing. But there's one day where Moses has finally had enough. The people are thirsty. And so God says, I want you to strike this rock and miraculously I'm going to provide water. And Moses gets up and he says, You stiff-necked and rebellious people, shall I bring water for you again? And he strikes the rock twice. And that one act keeps Moses from ever entering into the promised land, which was the whole point of his calling. Why? If you read there, God says, it's because you did not show me as holy before the people. In other words, they saw Moses' anger and thought it was God's anger, but it wasn't. He wrongly represented God, okay? And so when we speak the truth without love, we deny the God who is both truth and love, okay? In fact, 
taking that idea of, of truth and love, let's just recognize that the way God works rarely is a bolt of lightning, voice from heaven, completely removed from any context. And even when it is that, it is at the, at the very least a beginning of a relationship and one that is clearly defined and marked out by love. And the fact that you didn't know it beforehand has nothing to do with the fact that God's love you know, didn't exist. It's not God went, now I'm going to love this person. Right? He's, he's working, you're just not aware of it. Okay, my point is that these two go together, and so, so this idea that we just need to pick up the hammer of truth and just swing it as hard as we can, and something good will happen, misunderstands the holistic or cohesive or bigger reality of who God is and what he's doing. Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes truth doesn't come with anger, because God is sometimes angry. But when he's angry, he's angry in love. Okay. We speak the truth in love, and so we need to know God's word. We need to seek to share God's word. We need to bring it, but we bring it in love. And in the same way, you can't just have love without truth. Okay. Now, you can have other things. The main word we use today is tolerance. Tolerance doesn't require truth. Tolerance doesn't require you to open your mouth at all. And tolerance in some versions of it is a very good thing. But in close and dear relationship, intolerance is essential for love. You will not tolerate somebody continuing to harm their lives and destroy their relationship with other people because you love them too much. Okay. It's why I don't spank other people's kids. It's because I love my kids. It's because we have a relationship. It's because there's a commitment there. Okay? But here's the thing. Love without truth is false love. It's false. It may be nice. We can be nice to all sorts of people, but when you love people, you care. You care about their choices. You care about the consequences of their choices. You care about how they treat you. You care because you love. Okay. And this is a primary mistake that we make is we assume that love today requires that we just close our eyes and leave people where they are. But is that what God did? Did God just look at humanity and kind of like you know a senile grandfather just continue to provide them ice cream? No, he did what was necessary for change. And that's the point. That's what I want to drive home this morning is speaking truth in love is the only way to growth. Because love without truth doesn't ask anything. It doesn't lead anywhere. It's totally static. It says you're fine where you are. Stay put. It's a pat on the head and a walk away. But to speak truth without love also does not produce growth. It does not bring to change. It demands change. It says you can come back when but again, is that who Jesus is? Did Jesus speak to humanity and go, man, you guys are a mess. When you figure it out, then we can talk. No, he came, and he lived the life we could not live, and he died the death that we deserve, and he freely offered salvation. Okay, That's truth and love. And it's the reason why Jesus can be an anthem character for very liberal interpretations of churches of tolerance and an anthem character for very dogmatic, truth-speaking churches, but they both miss the reality of Jesus. 
because Jesus is constantly surprising. And so there's a woman caught in the very act of adultery, thrown at his feet. And he says, I don't condemn you. But he also says, go and sin no more. Truth and love. Okay. And so notice what I'm suggesting this morning. I'm saying that if we are to be a church that is growing, to be more and more like Jesus, we have to be a church of truth and love. Not truth, comma, and love. Truth and love. We have to discover what it's like to live a life of care. And I'll just give you one more illustration because it's one of my favorites. C.S. Lewis wrote this very strange book called The Great Divorce. And the premise is that a whole bunch of citizens of hell get to go on a tour bus and visit heaven. And it's a strange book because none of them want to stay once they get there. Okay? But there's a part where one of the citizens of heaven who knew a close friend on earth who was on the tour bus. So here he is, a resident of hell. And, and he says, I want to take you to the heavenly city. And he goes, oh, it's, it's too far. It's too hard. I just can't get there. And he says, you can put almost all your weight on me, but I cannot carry you. Truth and love. The choice has to be theirs, but we take the weight. Okay? That, that means we can go there together. That means I will help you do this. Truth and love means you don't set demands on people and say, unless, then. It's an invitation. It says, this is where you need to go. Let's go there together. It bears one another's burdens, but it recognizes that each should carry their own load, as Paul says in Galatians. Okay? You cannot carry people to heaven. You cannot change their minds or their hearts or remove them from their circumstances. God has made them incredibly autonomous. But if you put it all on them, if you ask everything of them, if you try and go about change in your life alone, like the old proverb says, if you want to go somewhere fast, go by yourself, but if you want to go far, go with others. What we're talking about here, there is no going fast. The Christian life isn't made better with a church. It's made possible. That's what Paul is laying out here. You need people, not just who will love you, but who will speak the truth to you. And they need you. Let's notice what he says next. He says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. You notice that little phrase, in every way? For this morning, let's, let's change the wording on that a little bit and, and say in every direction. What Paul is trying to convey here is that if we're to grow to be more like Christ, we can't just have our stock issues or our stock focus. We can't pick from a menu of ways to grow and just go, I'm just going to take you know, meal A and ignore everything else. If we're to be like Christ, it means it's not just the places where you're currently aware of needed uh, needed change, but the places that you're completely oblivious to. It means not just the things that we have a natural cultural propensity to that has nothing to do with following Jesus, it's just where we started. It also has to challenge, you know, the idols of our own time and the idols of our own culture, which we just take for granted, okay? Growing up in every way means there is a whole bunch of ways to grow, and we both need to be pursuing as well as open to that. 
Now, this is hard. And the reason it's hard is because change is hard. Even when it's spirit-filled, God of the universe on your side, change. It's hard. Okay? Sometimes God miraculously swoops in and takes away all struggle and desire. But that's sometimes. Okay? And so, because of that reality... It can be offensive when we've got our nose to the grindstone and we're focusing on this thing here and somebody says, hey, you know, you really need to deal with your anger problem. And you're like, that's the least of my worries right now. But, but growing in every way assumes growing with everyone. It means that you don't need a mentor who, who operates as a doctor and diagnoses all your conditions and just prescribes and prescribes and prescribes. You need a family of mutual support that see different things and carry different burdens for you and help in different ways and have different gifts and so on and so forth. Okay? And so men's ministry is great, but you need the women of the body of Christ. And if you're a family, you need the singles in our church, not just to babysit your kids. Okay? You need the whole body to grow into a whole body that looks like Jesus. And that's where Paul goes next. Notice what he says here. Verse 16. First he says, From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What a mouthful. Okay. In fact, he's got this large aside in here that makes you miss point number one. Notice how it opens there in verse 16. From whom? From whom? That's the question we should ask. Right there, he's talking about the head. He's talking about Jesus. And so first, let's start with what from whom? What does he want to say about Jesus? And the first thing he says is that Jesus, uh, uh, in Jesus, the whole body is joined and held together. Okay. Again, we've hit this in past weeks. It's Jesus who makes a church, not us. We don't get to carve out this person or exclude those people, right? He said already between Jews and Gentiles, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. You cannot put it up again, okay? This is no Berlin with an east and west side, okay? But he has joined it together and he also holds it together, okay? He made us one and he keeps us one, okay? But notice what it says um, next. Uh, So halfway down it says, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. From whom makes the body grow? What is it that grows a church? Is it some sort of philosophy of church growth? Is it some sort of, uh, you know, model or mechanism that we can implement? No, Jesus grows the church, And that's not my opinion. That's what Jesus says. In Matthew 16, Peter finally gets a right answer. The disciples don't get them very often. He says, Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And he says, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven. He kind of robs him of getting the right answer on his own. And then he says, upon this rock, you are Peter, and just like you are Peter, upon this rock, as you as an embodied confessor of who I am, I will build my church. Okay. But, however, 
Jesus is the one who makes the body grow, but notice how it finishes there. Makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here we see that growth isn't something that God does to a church, it's something he does through the church. And that's just as important. And that brings us back to the meat of all the other things that Paul was saying in that verse, because what does he say? He says, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Maybe we could add a third thing that Jesus has done there. He's equipped every joint. But what does that mean? If you have a different translation, it says from every ligament, as if it's talking about the things that hold your knees together. But the word just means contact, okay? And I would suggest what he's saying is from every point of contact with which it is equipped. Okay. If we were to all take hands and we wanted to all experience change in the posture of our bodies and the first person started to do the worm, right, do the wave, and it would go through and it would go through one by one by one by one. But what, what if an octopus was at the center and there were eight hands? Do you see how it would multiply the way growth works? That's point, point of contact. What, what I'm suggesting to you is Paul is trying to make aware here that, again, you don't just need a Christian in your life. Everybody needs a Jesus buddy. You need interwoven relationships, point of contact for growth. And so the way that we do this starts with making relationships with the body of Christ, drawing a circle around this room and saying, it is my goal to know, not equally, but to know everybody in this room, to find some way to overlap with the people in this room, to get to know everybody in this room. You cannot make disciples without making relationships. But again, oftentimes we think of Jesus' command to go and make disciples, and we think that we need to just find a disciple and, you know, baptize Mary and bury them. That's not what we see at all. What we see is the apostles going out and starting disciple communities where they disciple one another. Okay. And so every point of contact means establishing relationships. It means showing up, not just on Sunday, but coming out for the men's ministry. It means joining a home group. It means shaking hands of people you haven't met on Sunday morning and inviting them over for coffee. It means so many different things. But the more points of contact, and this is coming from somebody who is terribly introverted. This is a hard point for me in Christianity, not an easy one. I get overwhelmed in this stuff very easily, and the hardest part of Sundays for me is right after we finish the service and everybody's just around, okay? Because where I want to be at that point is in my car. But I need the body. In fact, Paul says in another place, there is no one in the body of Christ, no member, no person that you can say, I don't need you. I'm sufficient without you. There's no appendix in the body of Christ. No extracurricular organ that has no, no necessity or value. Okay. Now let me reverse that because many of you are new believers. We need you now, not someday. And that's what Paul says next. Notice what he says at the end here of verse 16. He says, join and held together with every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly. That's a fully functioning, full participation body. Okay. And this means a couple of things. It means that if, 
if you are only a receiver in the Christ and not a giver, the body suffers. It means that if you decide to stay away from this community, if you're distracted by something else, or if you're, if you're chasing your own sinful habits and you don't want any of us to know, we suffer. Okay. The body grows best when the whole body, each and every part, is working properly. It means that if you're afraid to talk to the people about this room about what Jesus is showing you, the body suffers. It means that if you slip right out the door after Sunday service, as I am prone to do, the body suffers. Okay. But working properly is not the same thing as being completely, totally put together. It's not the same thing as really figuring out who your gifts are and how you serve best. It's not the same thing as us all being ordained ministers and all becoming pastors. It's none of those things. It's about being what you are, where you are. You are a member of the body of Christ now. You do have gifts and perspectives and prayers that you can offer and hugs that you can give. You do have a way to embody God's love and truth for the people around you. And all that God is asking of you is to do that right now because we're all in that place. Paul says in maybe the last week or the last month of his life, he says, Christ died for sinners of who I am chief. He says that near the end of his life. He says, I'm the worst of the bunch. Now, you, you only have a couple of options. One, Paul was a really bad guy, and the gospel thing didn't change anything. So he's still a really bad guy. Two, somehow Christianity has made Paul worse. Okay? Or three, and this is the one I would suggest, the deeper and further Paul has walked with Jesus, the more he's realized he still has to go. There is a maturity to recognizing more and more how much you need Jesus because the goal of Jesus is not independence, like raising a child and he's like, now you can go live on your own. It's always been dependence. Paul in Ephesians is going to compare it to a husband and a wife. It's an eternal relationship of growing deeper intimacy. Don't ever feel bad that you need Jesus. That's by design, okay? But what that means is Here I am with 11 years of pastoring this church under my belt and a handful more of ministry and walking with Jesus for almost 20 years, and I am overwhelmed by the areas where I need Jesus to work, by the areas where I need people to speak into my life, by the areas where I need to again go before the throne of grace and receive forgiveness and the cleansing, okay? Don't worry about that stuff. That doesn't prohibit you from being the body. It's a prerequisite. We are a hospital, but that's not divided into patients and doctors. It's just patients. There's only one head of the body, which means even myself, Nick, Andy, we're parts of the body as well. We're not heads of this church. We're just pastors. We're under shepherds. That's the phrase that Peter coins. We're not even really shepherds. We're just sheep with a role. Okay? That's it. And so we need you. We need you. When we speak the truth in love, when each part is working properly, what is it happens? It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up, so that it strengthens us from every wind of deception 
and deceitful schemes. It strengthens us against temptation. It strengthens us, okay, in our proclamation and our witness of who Jesus is to our neighbors. In fact, that's one last one that I think is worth hitting. Evangelism is essential to the gospel. And sometimes that just means that some person goes to some place where there's some people and tells them what Jesus has done. But when we talk about witness, witness is a bigger category that includes not just evangelism, telling people what Jesus has done, but also doing good works on Jesus' behalf. Right? That's what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. When people see your good works, they will glorify your Father in heaven. And so part of the witness is living out the kingdom of God that we've now been invited into and will one day be everywhere, but right now already is here. Okay? But the biggest aspect of witness that the Bible has instilled is the church. The church is the witness of Christ. Jesus said this, By this they will know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. The more we grow in Christ, the more compelling the gospel becomes. The more visible it is that God is alive and at work in Jesus Christ. The more we will begin to embody the heart for our neighbors that meets them for their needs and invites them into our lives. All of those things are where we're going, but clearly it begins here. Discipleship with training wheels happens in the body of Christ. Then it extends beyond its boundaries. Okay. But notice that it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It just can't be said enough. Christian growth requires loving community. You can't send away for $9.95 for a discipleship program in the mail. You can't hole yourself up in the desert and seek to find Jesus there because his body is here. <laughs> his body is here. But I also think there's a tremendous encouragement in this. What does change look like in the Christian life? It looks like a community who's commu- committed to speaking the truth and love to one another. That's it. And I will tell you with confidence that we have seen it here. We have seen people who started here and are now here. We have seen people who were just present with us and then were stirred to go elsewhere because God had called them and they heard that voice here. We have seen people, we have seen me being blind to my own sin until I had basically a loving intervention where people sat me down and said, hey, we're pretty sure you can't see this, but it matters. And that is the greatest gift that God could give because it is the gift of God himself. As we each embody Jesus to one another, bringing the washing of the water of the word, extending the loving invitation to go deeper in Christ, embracing, okay? You know, we're, we're a Protestant church, we're not Catholic, and so we don't have a confessional. But one of the things that was wrong with the confessional in Martin Luther's eyes during the Reformation was not that Christians confessed their sins. It was that they merely confessed it to the priest. John tells us to confess our sins to one another. Why does that matter? Let me just give you one illustration and we'll wrap up here. 
It's because that means your brother or sister in Christ can look you in the eyes and say, you were forgiven. And there, the word of God's forgiveness becomes audible. You are embodied beings, and so you need an embodied Jesus. You all know it. In fact, we struggle with that. We wish that he was here, but what did he tell us? He says, it's really good that I'm going away. Why? Because through his spirit, he was going to multiply the reality of God at work in the world by working in and through us to one another. Okay. So I want to read this passage again. And I want you, as I do, to reflect on the goal of us as a church, of the means of speaking the truth in love, and of the commitment that Christ has made to his people in these things. And then we'll pray. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Father, my, my prayer is simple. My prayer this morning is just that we would be a growing church. And that's not about numbers of attendees. It's about becoming more like Christ. It's about being committed to the simple reality that there is power in the word of God, and that there is power in the love of Christ that has been shed abroad in our hearts and is expressed in our love for one another. And I want to pray especially for those who are just fully acquainted with the sharp and focused reality of their sin and their temptation and their struggle this morning. And I pray that you would protect them from the shame that would drive them away from the things they need most which is a family that speaks the truth in love. And finally, I want to pray specifically for those who, um, who don't know what it looks like to speak the truth in love. I pray that you would give them boldness and courage to just begin to share what you are doing with those around them, to establish relationships with other people in the room. And even when they don't know what to say, May they remember that we know the one who does. And they, may they say, let's, let's, le- let's read the word together. Let's go and sit at the feet of Jesus together. I don't have an answer for you, but I know the one who does. And I pray, God, praying all these things underneath, I pray that, that we would grow. That we would be a stronger witness to our neighbors. That we would be a stronger body for ourselves. And that we would be stronger in the manifestation of the power of the gospel and the glory of the God who cared, who saw, who spoke, who died, and who invites all into loving relationship with him. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's worship together.